The Cinematologist Podcast, Season 18. In the first episode of the new season, Neil and Dario discuss Christopher Morris's new quiet film, A Year in a Field. Neil hosted an onstage conversation with director Chris and producer Denzel Monk at a preview for the film before it goes on a nationwide cinema tour. Elsewhere in the episode, Neil and Dario discuss the new season and what lies ahead for the podcast, and in response to the onstage conversation, discuss the potential for a political cinema and how the film asks questions about individualism, community and collective action. Welcome back to the podcast. On with the show. Welcome to season 18 of the Cinematologist podcast. It's great to be back. I'm Dario Linares and joining me, of course, is my good friend and partner in this ongoing endeavor, Neil Fox. Welcome, Neil. Hello, 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 Dario. Hello, everyone. It is glorious to be back for season 18 and yeah, raring to go. Exciting, exciting times. How are you doing? Um, well, I'm pretty fraught, I have to say, especially after all the shenanigans in the last five minutes with trying to uh, get a new system up and running. But yeah, just coming to the end of, of Welcome Week for our academic colleagues, we'll know what that's all about. Um, and yeah, just uh, a really, really super busy time, but really looking forward to a lot of what's going to happen in the next few weeks on the podcast, but also in film world with the interviews we've got coming up and the the London Film Festival and and many other things. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's uh it's a crazy time of year. It's a crazy time in HE generally. But yeah, there's a there's a good season ahead and yeah, some really interesting and fun chats coming up coming your way listeners. So yeah, it's really good to be back and yeah, can't wait to get get kicked off. No, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's been an interesting summer because we've we've kind of t- taken uh a bit, even a bit more of a hiatus, a longer hiatus, and and um, kind of uh, stopped doing the the newsletters for for three months. But for our Patreon subscribers, the newsletters are coming back. But we also did quite a bit of really fun content over the summer. Um, I was house sitting for Neil, and I raided his DVD collection and did some sort of impromptu recordings uh, of his his uh, Blu-rays, which is great fun. And then. Neil has done a, a kind of quite extensive report on some of his summer viewing. Um, and that's that's available for our, our Patreon subscribers. But um, we really want to extend that content. So the, the newsletter will be coming back. And we're going to do some um, adjacent open access podcasts, which will be available to it to to everyone. Yeah, I don't know about you, Neil, but I'm really looking forward to sort of being able to produce our patreon content kind of adjacent and complementary to the main feed and yeah really hoping that we get 
you know, some more more Patreon subscribers because I think it is obviously it's the same. It's it's us in that sense, but it does offer us a slightly different angle into uh, certain subjects and maybe you know a little bit more personal, a little bit more free form. So anybody who, this this season who wants to get any even more cinematologist content, there will be there will be stuff on the Patreon site. Yeah, we we talked about that, didn't we, over the summer in terms of like as we were always doing, really kind of thinking about ways to freshen up what we do, kind of extend what we do and, and sort of, yeah, sort of bring in different things. And I think certainly the approaches that we took to the bonus episodes in the summer sort of made us think actually, yeah, it would be nice to do some of this stuff that sits alongside that, but, but was available to all, um, just to, yeah, kind of extend people's experience yeah. if they, if they want rather than, yeah, just sort of have it very, very kind of, well, not formalized, but, but, but sort of as it as it has been for a while now so hopefully our uh, our kind of dedicated patreon subscribers will understand that decision um and uh we'll still be back with our kind of extensive newsletter once a month for them uh which has been yes really that's been refreshed in the last year as well so we kind of keep keep thinking about ways to to make sure that, that our patrons are getting their value for their for their buck um but also yeah using that platform as a way to kind of yeah do something which is a little bit more freeform and it's been interesting because over the last week or so i've been listening to some podcasts with people who use patreon for music and they were sort of saying the same thing you know it's a space for yeah kind of more informality more kind of experimentation so hopefully there'll be some stuff that people will respond to over there and it might you never know it might sort of end up kind of shaping the uh the main episodes down the line as well i think you know that sort of space for experimentation is really important for keeping it keeping it going so yeah look out for some interesting stuff dropping over there uh, in the next uh, sort of month or so. Yeah, and it's funny anyway because you know we, we don't exactly have a, a sort of tight segmentation on on the main show anyway. I know I like we we like to say pretentious words like freeform and eclectic and what have you. Um, I just always remember Mark Jenkins, our friend, you know, calling it random. <laughs> so uh, which is fine, you know, of course. But but yeah, just sort of keeping that sense as as ever that that we're going in in directions that kind of we want to we we want to go in and and yeah the audience really it's up to them and if they want to be along for the ride that's that's great and we definitely definitely welcome that i don't know about you neil but just before we get into the main part of the episode i it's been a really odd summer for me for kind of film watching it seems to have been really dominated at the start by you know the barbie oppenheimer thing um, and and never really has fully recovered. It it was almost kind of like a a vacuum of of film conversation. And I don't think I've really seen anything this year. I mean, there's maybe maybe one film that that is just being released now that that I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's definitely going to be on my end of year top five. Um, but I'm really interested to sort of go to the London Film Festival and see what's what's coming out there. But I don't. I, I hesitate to say I'm I'm. It, is this going to be a disappointing year? But it, it just, with the strikes as well, it just feels like there's a very, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around where where film is just at the moment. Yeah, interesting. I was thinking quite similarly recently in terms of, yeah, like my film watching this whole year really has not been dominated by what's come out this year. Like I haven't seen Barbie. I haven't seen um, Oppenheimer. And I've seen very little that you could class as sort of being release this year and i was thinking actually i, I you could, sort of following the festivals a lot and seeing movie particularly picking up 
a lot of a lot of titles and you know i imagine that sort of november and december on movie is going to be very very full of you know sort of 2023 releases so i think it's going to if, if if i have an interest in that i think it's going to be catching up a lot a lot down there um and i think i mean the last time i went to the cinema i think was asteroid city um oh yeah yeah, yeah of course. you know so it's like that was kind of before that i think it was when we were we watched master gardener you know so it's, it's very kind yeah. of sporadic cinema visits and and even then on on online it's not really the stuff that, that's coming out so yeah i'm really interested to see what what my sort of end of year reflection looks like i can imagine that there's there's very little that would actually be out this year and certainly maybe not of any of those sort of those big hitters but i think yeah my my viewing sort of stepped up a lot but not necessarily yeah in the kind of in the new release realm and i'm i am looking forward to london film festival which we're both accredited for and hoping that there's some sort of gems that come through there um, and i know there's a couple of films that i reached out to about screeners that i'm really excited about yeah, no, it's it, it's going to be great, um, London, and we I think we're probably just going to be able to do one one episode, but there may be sort of bonuses along the way, hopefully. But but just to give you a sort of sense of the shape of the the coming season, we've got um, there's a, a Rock Hudson documentary coming out, and uh, I'm doing I'm interviewing the director for that. Um, Neil, you're gonna you're gonna interview um, our friend James Dean, who's a producer on. Uh, this new comedy, Apocalypse Clown. So that's to come. And also similar to other episodes we've done previously, which we try to delve into other film podcasters, um, we're interviewing Rico Galliano of the Movie Podcast. Um, and I was just really taken with his last season on uh, popular music in, in films. So all of those are, are in the can. Have I missed anything out there, Neil, in terms of what's coming up? No, I think that's it in terms of what's definitely confirmed. Um, and yeah, hope. There'll be some other stuff that will drop in, um, sort of irons in fires, as they say. Um, and I'm sure that, yeah, that things will come out of the, the festival season as well that we might pick up on. Yeah. And, and, and just to say, you know, if you are a regular listener and this is of course the, the new episode of the, of new season. So we are going to hit very hard, um, the, 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 the sharing on the social media for what it's worth these days, but you know, on, on as many channels as we can and, yeah, so if you do have the opportunity and a little bit of time to to share your love of the podcast, whether that's verbally to other film lovers or share on social media or, you know, really dropping us a, a review on your podcast app, app of choice or on iTunes, it really is a, a, a big help. And whenever anybody writes like a blog, and, and many people have done that about, about the podcast, you know, sometimes people write stuff listing their favorite film shows. Um, it's all really greatly received. It really is, and we we want to have another sort of boost when it comes to the uh, to the the, the 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 listener numbers, just to share the love um, of the sh- of the show. Uh, so, without any further ado, Neil, why don't you introduce the the subject of today's podcast? Because uh, this one was definitely your baby. Yeah. So this is a film called a year in a field it's directed by christopher morris a documentary filmmaker and it's it's a film that i have i've worked on so it's definitely you know sort of a film that i'm very very familiar with it's it's released in cinemas uh, now chris is on a tour with it around the country so you can catch it in a variety of cities with with chris doing a q a and it's 
it's on a solstice release. So it's kind of released this weekend to mm -hmm. coincide with the equ autumn equinox and will be in cinemas until the winter solstice when it'll be on, on streaming. Um, and the reason that that's significant is because it's a film about a standing stone um, in West, uh, in a, a menia in West Penwith, in West Cornwall, near where Chris lives. And it's it's his kind of relationship with the stone really over a period of time and how spending time in that space with the stone sort of slowly he sort of brings out some feelings that he's, he's sort of been pondering around uh, the climate crisis and yeah, just kind of his place in the world and 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 our place on the planet really. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a really it's a beautiful piece of work, but also it's a piece of work I think reveals um, a lot of the issues that we're we're grappling with, you know, in a broader sense around uh, the environment and you know what the what the now looks like, never mind the future, but also the role of cinema in 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 sort of being a political intervention into that, um, or whether cinema ends up just being a kind of a, a sort of document of 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 this inevitable process of uh catastrophe for want of a a better a one of a better phrase and yeah neil i'm definitely interested in sort of talking about that element as how much you that element of the film in terms of how much you see it as a a political film and what is a political firm film these days um because i think that you know on there isn't any solution to this, but it does sort of leave unanswered questions, doesn't it? So a very sort of uh, a film that you can, that that requires you to, to think through subjects that have no easy answers. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that as well. And that, that is something that did come up in the, the, the conversation, uh, the sort of the audience conversation that forms the main part of this episode um, in terms of the idea of a kind of a political cinema or, or kind of, almost a kind of politics v cinema and how the two um, in, intersect. Um, so yeah, this this is a conversation that was held earlier this week at the Poly in Falmouth as part of a kind of welcome week uh, preview of the film before Chris goes on tour for the new new student at the School of Film and Television. And uh, yeah, I was joined on stage for the conversation by, by Chris and the producer uh, Denzel Monk. Great, let's get into that now. never glued my hand to a road or doused a wildfire or strapped myself to a tree in Brazil. Never been there. And I've never been on a protest march. This is a quiet, unnoticed one-man vigil. A small, direct action of stillness. Day. Uh, so in the room we have a group of students undertaking the very start of their degree and uh, in the recent issue of Movie Notebook, the great slow filmmaker Simon Liang has shared his advice for filmmakers. So I'm going to use that as a way of sort of framing our conversation 
um, with a few of his kind of things that he thinks filmmakers should consider. And uh, then I'll open it up to, to our audience to ask questions. So if you guys want to have some questions uh, ready, go for it. So we're going to start with size first, kind of advice to filmmakers, which is think of location as a character, which I think sits very well. So Chris, can you talk about this location, what it means to you and how you sort of came to this project? Yeah, first of all, thanks for coming. Um, uh, I live about a mile, well, just under a mile from, the ha from that um, field, and I uh, moved here in 2015, and within a few weeks of moving here, I stumbled across the field, got lost, actually, and then I ended up in a field with a standing stone, and the standing stone was like a magnet, so you, you walk to it, don't you? And... Um, there was just something. I mean, I'm from Wales. I, where we used to live in Wales, we were surrounded by Bronze Age this and Bronze Age that. And West Cornwall, where I live, uh, down the other side of Penzance, near Land's End, um, there is, it, you're surrounded. We both lived down that way. And we were surrounded by Bronze Age. But there was something about this stone. I knew nothing about it. Um, and because I was running the film school here, I just started, I knew I wouldn't be able to make films for a while, so I began to photograph it. And for six years I photographed it, um, quite, kind of religiously, in, in, a, in a good way, religiously, um, just as a sort of um, a photo project. So, and it's on Instagram if you want to have a look at standing underscore, un, underscore, underscore granite. I'm nearly at a thousand followers, so I reckon if everybody follows me, I'm gonna I'm gonna crack it today. But um, but it was never meant for that. It was just meant as a project for me, really. I didn't care who followed me, um, and yeah, and then but it was there was something about this field, which is hard to define. You can see the sea. You can. It has a great sense of space above it, and it's enclosed. So it is both open and closed at the same time. So it's surrounded, it's boxed in, but it is always, but it's also open. I, it, it's hard to, to say why it attracted me, but it, it just did. Um, and then obviously in the film, it really becomes the, the protagonist and the, and, the, and the landscape in which everything happens. There's a really good quote, I can't say it, I can't remember what it is, but Barbara Hepworth, the great British sculptor from the 1930s. She moved down from North, uh, from West Scarborough, wherever that is, Yorkshire, East Yorkshire. Uh, she moved down to um, uh, live in Cornwall, and she wrote about the fact that walking through and seeing the stones that were shaped by the sea, even, um, were like figures in the landscape, and that. If you look at her sculpture, you can really see the Cornish influence on all that. And that resonated very much in my head when I was looking at this stone. It just becomes a figure. So there is no human in it. should probably plug the, the great film figures in a landscape about Barbara Hepworth. It would be a, a really nice compliment piece to watch alongside this. I think you can watch it on the BFI player on, online now, and it's, it's placed in the tape. It's as well. It's an incredible. It was actually the first film commissioned by the BFI Experimental Film Unit, which existed once upon a time. So yeah, it kind of it comes from that same place. Yeah, that is on the that is on the BFI player, um, and you call it in the in the film a sentinel, which kind of taps into that idea of yeah the, the kind of the figurative 
and the kind of yeah, the, sort of, the ability to, to project onto that, uh, and for it to also project outwards. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, while I was while the film was going, I I just preparing a post to put on my um, Instagram standing granite, and it's a letter to uh, Mr. Singnak to um, for the folly of re re pulling back on his climate commitments uh, and the stone is inviting him to come and see the film in London and to bring his children because it is his children who will have to suffer the consequences of his diabolical actions but um, ultimately the stone absorbs in my head the, the stone absorbs and acts as a touch point for our the pro what we call progress. So the obvious synergies are there with other films, the science fiction films that, that I've always loved, like 2001, particularly the Black Monolith, uh, which is there and marks the changes in human progress. Well, my Black Monolith stands there and absorbs the folly, I guess, of where we are. That's how I read it. I didn't start there. I won't come on to that. But that developed as the film went along. I didn't start off with that in my head. And I think it's pretty obvious in the film how the film develops that actually uh, those are the things that began to emerge as the film was made. Yeah, and, and you, you emerge as the film is made, don't you, in terms of where you start as a, as a kind of, in terms of the, your politics and your activism and where you end up. And, and, and that's a very outwardly political statement you just made there, you know, which feels very different to the person who maybe started that, started the film process. Simon Yang says, your film reflects who you are at the moment. It should match your level of maturity. And you're, you're quite kind of, you know, outspoken, but very kind of direct about, this is a film that 60-year-old Chris had to make and couldn't have been made by 20-year-old, 18-year-old Chris. It's so important, this. I couldn't have made this film when I was starting at film school uh, myself, or even when I was in my career at the BBC. I just, that wasn't, it's not that I, it's not that I wouldn't have wanted to make a film about this subject if I was that age. It's just that something about the fact that I've lived six decades gives me an ability to kind of reflect back while I was making the film about the kind of life I was born into, which was so wholly different from this life we live today with phones and plastic and, and, and things. It was plastic in the 60s, but the whole of our culture has changed vastly in my lifetime. I, I think, and, I, and suddenly, standing there for hours on end allowed me space and time to reflect back on that and then put it into the film. That's such a good phrase. What was that phrase, the first one, the back uh, that he says? Your film reflects who you are at the moment. Exactly. And, and so I think you can probably see in the film that I changed a lot. So about three quarters of the way through the film, I say I've never been on a protest march. Um, and, and, and that was because, and there's no mention of climate change in the first 20 minutes of the film. None at all. But that reflects exactly the journey I went on. Now, it wasn't I wasn't concerned with climate change, because of course I was. But then it, there, there became a sort of dial where I'm quite a calm person, 
and you know it takes a lot to get me riled and 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 that dial sort of grew through the through the years so I ended up by of course joining Extinction Rebellion and going on the last march in um, in April in London but um, but really the film isn't about that I think the film reflects my growing mm. um, ability to sort of deal with it on a different level than I had before yeah so I says the art of waiting waiting for a train to pass waiting for a flock of birds to arrive um, which feels very very stupid but we, we talked the other week about and you sort of said it's not really slow cinema we don't consider it slow cinema because of what, what goes on but I was thinking about this and I think it's a very different type of slow cinema in that it it, it slowly became cinema you know that it took a long time for you to to realize actually that this is a film so what was it what was it like in terms of that moment of shooting moving footage as opposed to still footage and then talk a little bit about the process of bringing Denzel in and then it, it, to, to where it is now if that's not too big no I can uh, I can say um so I was photographing it, then one day I go to see the stone and there was a feather caught in the um, uh, lichen. And in fact, it's in the film uh, later on because another feather caught in the lichen. So if you remember, there's a bit where the feather flies away. And I photographed it and it just didn't look very good because of course the feather was moving. So I, then I flipped the switch on the camera and I, I started filming it. And that was the first moving shot of the of the. Um, stone that I'd taken. Then I took another one, I took another one. There was no intent to make a film and there was no intent that I thought I might put these up on the internet instead of stills. But then you I started just making more and more of these images and then I found a book on my bookshelf I hadn't, I picked up at a junk shop um, 10 years previously called A Year in the Life of the Field by a proper ecologist called um, Michael Allaby who started the Soil Association and part of the organic movement, etc. He's a brilliant writer, etc. Um, and he'd written it in 1981, 40 years previously, in a Cornish field. And at that point, I kind of like put two and two together and I thought, oh, okay, I've got my Bible, I'll follow what he did a year and I will collect my shots now into something approaching thing. And then, uh, and, but I had no expectation, I, I, it was just a personal project. Then I went for lunch with Denzel. You pick up the story. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Chris told me what you do. I've been following the Instagram, and I'm a great lover of, of um, Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments anyway, a stone clover. And, um, uh, yeah, you, you said you'd, you'd sort of, you'd start, I think, I think you'd, uh, you'd cut together a little bit of um, some harvest no, you asked me to do. Oh, you to asked me to do oh, that. Okay. No, there was nothing. <laughs> I'm deflating. Okay, I said, "Well, you've been filming stuff. You should cut something together." Then that's <laughs> that's must be where it started. And um, and sh and shortly afterwards, you sent me a like, 10, 15 minute yeah. clip of um of some of the the, the autumn equinox har harvest stuff there with with the music pretty much as it is in in the film. And at that point, I thought. This is gonna. This could be an amazing piece of slow cinema because that's that's what it was at, at that point. And then we started talking more about it, and and it just kind of over time evolved. And you started writing, mm. what becomes the voiceover on it, and it kind of. And for, for me, watching watching the film now, it's it's so far removed from 
explosive but there's so much going on in it there, there's definitely it has its own pace and it kind of you know it, it particularly the the opening it brings you into the pace of the film because you can't you can't be frenetic about uh, a four thousand year old stone in a in a field over a year. This got, you've got to slow down our our usual kind of expectations a bit to, to just meet that place somewhere. And but then there's there's so many there's so many ideas and, and reflections about our existence then now the kind of the different ways that we perceive time that are going on through it. That um, yeah. Yeah, I think on the poster we put, it's a quiet film. And actually it's not that quiet either, but it's sort of just help, helping the audience understand that they're coming to see something where the lots of cinemas or people I've been talking to say it's such an unusual film, I know actually, or such an unconventional film. I don't think it's unconventional at all. It's like four chapters, spring, autumn, you know, whatever. I mean, it's not unconventional, but it, so it's somewhere between slow and quiet. I, I think maybe what's... What what people perceive was of as unconventional is, is the fact that it, it comes out of the genesis of how, how the film came into being and how it evolved that because it was just you know a very small team of people mm. you know largely yourself working on it for, for large space of time no no kind of commissioning framework yeah. no kind of expectation of what it should be yeah. and and really just letting letting the film emerge from from the experience of making it, it kind of it was it was an evolutionary process, and it's quite rare that a film is able to be made in that way. even documentary yeah. is able to be made in that way without. It's not it's not necessarily that there's interference, but just that there's all these other voices and expectations and ideas of what's right and what's wrong, what should be, what shouldn't be, and the conventions that that brings with it. I think one of the things that was beautiful about the process of making this was that it was completely free of that. It just kind of it was it was a labour of love, and it kind mm -hmm. of. I think it, it allowed it to blossom into the into the film that it wanted to be. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I mean, I'll, I, to go back to your original question, the moment it became cinema was when Denzel gave me affirmation that what I was doing was beyond what I was doing. And him saying, cut something together, and I went, oh, no, oh, God. And <laughs> But I physically had to sit down and cut something. And I, so I cut a sequence and a mate's music I shoved on top, which is Sarah's music, which is now all the way through the film. And, and I just sent it to him. But it was that affirmation back. And even after, you know, I'm an experienced filmmaker, it's still brilliant to have somebody else say, actually, no, what you are doing, actually, it's got some worth. And at that moment, and it was at that moment completely it went from being a collection of shots that I was collecting that one day I would turn into some something like a short or something. It just then became a project. And you can see then that also it became what's the worth? What's the point of it all? The point it can't just be four you know, four sections. And then I I'd be keeping notes and, and details all the way through, reading the news. I'm an avid reader of magazines and stuff so New Scientist magazine I have every week and I was reading reports about this about you know a lot of the stuff that's in there and I also listened to a brilliant Radio 4 programme that's coming to the end of its uh, tenure this, this Friday called In Our Time which is um, Melvin Bragg who's in his 80s now I believe and every week he brings academics to talk about something 
and it could be one week it will be Herodotus or it will be um, Emily Bronte or it will be photosynthesis there is one on photosynthesis uh, or it will be the electron or it will be and then uh, it will be ice ice there was what the, the things about water coming from from outer space all came from that program uh, and there was a brilliant program about how the earth was formed and, the, and Thea smashing into Korea. that all came from listening to this radio program I can't praise it enough it's bonkers and eclectic and wonderful so it all came from those those things all came together the moment that he said actually there's something in this and I, I can't stress how important that was Lots to, lots to say in response to that. One of the things, just to go back a little bit, was that the unconventionality. I think what is unconventional about it is, is in the genre, the very loose genre, kind of the ecological film, or the kind of the nature documentary, or the, you know, the kind of the crisis documentary, mm -hmm. where there is a sense of telling the audience very directly what to think, how to feel, and this film doesn't do that. It's, we, we, we learn a lot about how you feel, and you give us the space as an audience to feel along with you. But it, I think it is unconventional in terms of it's not presenting answers, it's presenting ideas, it's, and it's, it's not yelling those ideas, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's just, yeah, sort of providing the space. Um, so I just wanted to sort of acknowledge that. Um, Sai also says, you can also make a film with, crew of, with a crew of five, which refers to that, and then make films in a double what this one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> five times. We have five people doing this, um, and also make films in accordance with your resources. And what I, I, I think is interesting to talk about in the context of where we are today is is the fact that the process of making the film reflects what the film is about. So, Denzel, can you talk a little bit about that because that's something that's very close to Bersena's heart as a as a kind of production company. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know. So we, we talk about um, Bersena as an ecosophical production company, and and uh, an ecosophy is is a uh, is the kind of the philosophy of ecological harmony. Every every film has its own ecosophy, and I think this isn't an ecological film. It is an ecosophical film. There's a philosophy that is about your experience of that year and of everything that's going on in the world around it that sort of that sits at the heart of it so it kind of it, it it's a very reflexive film it kind of it's it sort of folds in on itself and and, and emerges from that process as well i think there's you, you can't separate you can't separate the, the the form and the content and the process and the process of making this was very simple and emergent and kind of it, an evolutionary thing and that's reflected in the content of the film and the, the work, the structure of it, and the way that it's it's kind of put together as a as a piece of cinema. So I'm going to turn it over after this question. So get ready. Um, Sai says Bresson, Bergman, Orson Welles, Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> um, should be obvious to everyone in this room. Um, but when I when I see that, when when I think back to that idea of it being unconventional, I think as well. One of the things that might need stating is that you, you're coming from a very specific cinematic perspective. You know, so to you, it's kind of rooted in, in a kind of form of cinematic storytelling. Can you talk a little bit about the, the kinds of films and filmmakers that, you, that sort of you would put this film in a dialogue with um, to give it a sort of wider sort of cinematic context? Well, as I said, I think there's a lot of science fiction influence 
in everything that I do. I love science fiction, and um, but it's beyond that. I, oh gosh, that's such a good question. I would put. Um, I mean, the things that are behind everything I do would be Stanley Kubrick, Jacques Tati, and most recently. Um, uh, <laughs> it's gone up here. Um, yeah, I love him so much. <laughs> you the living. Oh, Roy Anderson. Roy Anderson. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely love the formality of his work and his work all about humans and human beings in close. Thing. It couldn't be more different. Jacques Tati is all again about the kind of human interaction and misunderstanding of human interaction. Couldn't be more different. But the thing that is consistent with both films, particularly um, uh, as opposed to Kubrick, those two filmmakers, Roy Anderson and uh, uh, um, Jacques Tati, is the stillness in the camera and the stillness in the shot. And I've fallen in love with that over the years as I've become a document, as my documentaries went on and on. And actually, um, the previous films I've made, documentaries, I, I made a film uh, about sex work in, amongst student population. It was a drama doc. And again, a deliberate understanding of where you use handheld and for what reason, and why you keep the camera still and allow everything to happen within the frame was such an influence uh, on, on me. So, yeah, and when you speak, I'll remember some more, <laughs> if I can remember their names. Denzel? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I think what we talked about before, there's, there's kind of, um, there's, a, there's a, an element of, of calling this quatsy in, in, in the latter part of the film, and, um, and that's, that's certainly, I don't remember when I first watched it, but that, that film had a massive impact on me when I first saw it and, and I think has, has, has been buzzing around in the back of my head somewhere ever, ever since. And it kind of, it, again, it's kind of like an antithesis of this in a way because that's all, you know, uh, sort of mechanised society and, and, you know, harking back to man with a movie camera, it's, it's all about human, human processes, mechanised processes, and setting that against natural processes and playing with time in really interesting ways. And this film does that, but it does it from a point of, of ancient stasis <laughs> rather than contemporary or, or, or you know, sort of modern, modern world um, mechanised commodification. But those elements are there as well. They're just there as the, as the rotting bit of detritus in the hedge and we see we, and the ships passing in the distance so it's kind of it's playing with all those same ideas but from uh, such a different perspective yeah I, w I was really lucky a few years ago to go and see a screening of Koina Scotsy uh, in Cardiff uh, and Philip Glass live with uh, six Moog or you know six um, synthesizers a synthesizer orchestra playing live mm -hmm. for the, it was it was beyond and uh, yeah, and perhaps if there's a if there's a question about the music, I could talk a little bit more about the music, because obviously that last ten minutes is a kind of Philip Glass esque um, piece, uh, which is kind of a little homage to that. 
the editing in something like Baraka, if you know Baraka, um, which was made by the cameraman who worked on Coin of uh, I would say that's a massive influence, the editing style, that idea of deliberate big junctions between landscape scenes uh, was really influential. Great. And um, so I would agree in terms of your ideas around stillness, because he says stillness is not a complete lack of movement, but time continues to pass second by second in the film. Definitely. Absolutely. Kind of captures that. Right. Who wants to say something? So we've got a microphone, so please wait for it to come round. Um, at the back there, that is one right at the back, yeah, in the, in the corner. Sorry, Kingsley, right to the... Um, well, talking about the music, um, I saw, um, well, I really like those last 10 minutes. Um, but the way you mix, <coughs> there was a mix of the music. Um, do you think uh, there's music in nature? And also, do you think there's music in a modern world, a technological world, as opposed to with nature? That's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, and actually, there was no intention to use music. Um, initially, and so again, as I said, I was collecting shots. Then when Denzel asked me to cut something, I was only using, I only had the sound available that, that, I, that was on camera sound. So, I, you know, it was just rubbish. So, I just, so then I thought, well, I'll, for Denzel, I'll stick a bit of music on it. And, and that's, that was a game changer, really, because, um, yeah. But to answer your question, I think there is music in nature, and I think you could make this film with that, with with found sound, beautifully. There, there are there are sections of it that are I mean, the the sort of the midsummer section with, yeah. where there's long just the sound of insects and yeah. nothing else. It's it's definitely musical. Yeah, we had um, as I say, nobody really came to the field with me apart from this brilliant sound recordist called Bronwyn Buckeridge, who teaches fine art here. She, um, on, on fine art, she's an artist who, her practice is around uh, capturing wildlife sound, and then she works that into her practice. Um, so she came to the field two or three times during the spring and summer to capture the amazing sound of the things, but she turned up with these microphones and they were hand-built, she built them herself, and they were the size of this chair, and she had two of them, she clunked into the field, whacked them down, and then she'd do 10-hour recordings. I mean, it was the maddest thing. She put one, she did one overnight, she sort of arrived at eight, put it down, and then came back at eight the next morning with a 12-hour recording of the field. There you are, Chris, this is. <laughs> and it was, but it was amazing. It was all that buzzing and all that stuff was recorded by Bronwyn. Um, so yeah, you could easily have the music. I think the, I think the um, uh, just to say that the one thing I like about this music more than anything is it was not written for the film. So it was Sarah's uh, Sarah Moody, who was a um, composer in Bristol, who I I've worked with on a, a couple of other projects. Um, she's a cellist and all round musical genius, and. Um, I just said to her, look, is there any, have you got a back catalogue of stuff that I could just raid? And she said, well, well, there's this stuff, and, and, and this stuff is in the film. And most of it was composed for theatre pieces in, in Bristol for children, 
or for uh, commission pieces for churches or, or whatever. Um, so, for example, the Philip Glass piece at the end is a children's show called The Hare and the Tortoise, that famous fable. Uh, and so the Philip Glass mad was when the, the rabbit was running, you know. And, and I just took all that and took it out of its original context and recycled it. So one of the reasons I liked it was because it was a low-carbon approach to, making, to, to using music in the film, because it already existed in the world. So no, nobody drove anywhere to do anything or, or expended any carbon making it. I just recycled it. But it was fun to go through hours of her work. And, and then what I found was, when I was going through, you'd hear a piece like, um, it's near the uh, harvest scene, I think, and it, it goes, la 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 and you were listening to this beautiful voices just singing that and then a picture that you knew that I had already shot popped into my head and that, that I'd try them together and so it wasn't uh, it was a brilliant creative process the only the only bits that were composed are the beginning and the end and uh, perhaps I could talk about that briefly the um, opening dawn shot and the woman singing at the end in Cornish are uh, taken from um, an opera uh, and it's uh, by Wagner and it's Das Rheingold, which the Rheingold. Now if you know that opera, um, and this is why one of the things that you have to do while you're at film school is not just watch films, you need to imbibe every influence you can, including things you don't think you like, Maybe that could include opera, for those who don't know it. But the reason is because, how do I start a film? I start it with a dawn shot. Terence Malick used exactly the same um, music for the beginning of the uh, film he made about the discovery of the new world. What was that called? The New World. The New World. <laughs> yeah, that film. <laughs> um, but it's this incredible bass opening of these throbbing cellos and bass, double basses. It's just brilliant. And then it builds and builds and builds. Now, the reason to use that is because the story of Das Rheingold is about the gods discovering there is treasure under the ground and they rip it out. They send people in and they steal it from the Rhine maidens, these, these, these magical creatures that live under the ground. In my film, it's the Elder Mother. But they take from below the ground and they build a fantasy land using that gold. And along the way, they kill lots of people and they disturb everything and they upset the whole balance of everything, including nature. But the gods do this because they are gods, us. And uh, at the end of the opera, they built Valhalla, the, the kingdom of the gods, where they're all going to live in happily, you know, because it's a fantasy. And the opera is about to end. And then out of the floor of the opera house will come Erta, the Earth Mother. And she sings this lament. And the words that, that uh, Noni is singing in my film are exactly Wagner's words from the libretto. Um, I know what was, what will be, and what is to come. Uh, or whatever it is. And uh, you know enough already. You have been warned. Turn back, turn back. Hear me, hear me, hear me. And she disappears into the ground. Gods ignore her go across the bridge, um, and then the next four operas that follow is the consequences of their actions, ending in the twilight of the gods and the death of everyone. And 
for me, I knew the story of Das Rhein Gold and I wanted to share it. I don't expect anybody to be watching my this film and to pick that up at all. I just know that nobody will. But it doesn't matter. I know it's there. And it's about planting fable. For me, it was about planting fable into this, 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 this film that I was making. So, yeah, that's the music. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, before we go to the next question, so in that 12-hour overnight recording, hmm. we, is that where the badger sound comes from? I'd love to say I, I'd love to say that the badger the badger sound was uh, from that recording. It wasn't. No, the badger sound was a, a mix of snuffling, my, my snuffling foley, and Chris's and, scratching, and my scratching. So that was done in soft. The badger sound. We're, we're very committed to our filmmaking practice. <laughs> Weirdly, Denzel, not the first time you've played a badger. Not the first time, it <laughs> certainly won't be the last. Yeah. Yeah. If you need a badger, Denzel is available. Um, any more questions? Should we just start? Yeah, start there and we'll come down. We'll, we'll get to those, we'll come down. Hi, um, can I ask how you go about, um, or how this film is funded, and how you go about applying for funding um, and budgeting the whole process? <laughs> So this is the worst film to ask that question about because the, unlike most most films, there was no applying for anything with this. It was it was something which Chris started doing and then I joined in and then we we, we uh, had, there was a, a small amount of private investment, tiny amount of private investment to just get us through the post production process and that was it. So it was it was very unusual in that process. It's kind of um, and I think the the questions about apply for funding and all the rest of it, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pick that up in the producing seminars in year two. <laughs> I, I think it, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. There is an answer that I can give you, which will, um, I'm not sure I've ever said this, but um, uh, coming out of lockdown, I think it was in 2020, there was a funding bid for something called the West Penwith landscape partnership they put up uh, a thing saying we're looking for a filmmaker to uh, make a, a film uh, that reflects the work that we're doing West Penn with 10 grand and I did apply for that but I applied for it with a different film well a different idea which was four fields so spring autumn summer winter in different fields in West Penwith one of which would have the stone in it so um and I, I didn't get it, um, and, um, the, the, and you know somebody else made it. I'm sure a very nice film, but it wasn't. It, but the film that this film was maybe six months later, and I that had gone out of my head, and yeah, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. But I think the one thing I would take from this, if you like, is that not every film can be made this way, but sure as eggs. As X, there are a lot of films that could be made this way, you know, and you're in the prime position to do it because you've got access to the most incredible kit for the next three years. It's just a question of being able to start. I mean, obviously, I was lucky enough to be able to feed myself at the same time. It's, not, it's you know, I appreciate that, but ultimately, the barriers to actually making now are so low uh, that it's those are the important lessons I think I th from my I, th I think there was uh, 
I'm going to ask you to repeat one of those quotes again about working with the resources mm. that you've got. You know, it's like, yes, you can, you, you, some, some things need money. Sometimes you need to find, you know, small or large amounts of money to get certain things done. But, but any idea can evolve with the resources you've got in front of you now. So you might not be able to get to completion with that, but you can, wherever you are in the process, you can, you can, you know, talk to other people and, and actually it's, it's the best way to think about how to finance a film is how to resource a film. So the, the support that came from the Sound Image Cinema Lab and, and the resources that were used in, in post-production, you know, we could have gone out to look for money and found a commercial solution to that and gone to a studio somewhere and paid a sound engineer to do it. But we worked with, with, uh, you know, with a, a lower budget, but with bringing, bringing in those resources that, were, that yeah. were around us and were available to us you know, through the the relationships that we sort of built up. So, yeah, there's there's many answers to that question, but the, the main one is work with the resources you've got. Make films in accordance with your resources. I think the thing is, yeah, like it's, it's having a lot of different projects ready to go at any time. And yeah, this film could only have been made this way, and, you know, but, but that's the same for every film. There's not one way to make a film. And, and I think one of the things that we do try and do, particularly on the course, is to really push back against on all the course, push back against the idea that oh, you need all this stuff to do this. You don't. Yeah, you, can, you can find ways around it. You can you can push push things in a different direction and, and get something really special. And arguably, going down the route of funding, bringing in other, you know, would have pushed this film in a more conventional. You know, it would have. You would. Or, you would or have it might not have happened. Or it might not have happened. Or voices would have come into it, which would have made it not the thing that ultimately. It is. It's worth just saying that there is no drone shots in this film because I don't have a drone. <laughs> and I think it's better for it. Um, and the other thing is, the reason that there is no camera movement is because my tripod was so awful that I couldn't pan or tilt on it. It was a stills tripod. So, um, and I thought, well, should I go and get one from stores? And I thought, no, no. Yeah. I just started filming and it was really rickety. Um, but it kind of, so it dictated the style of the film was because of the resources. Include, including the one camera move that is in there. Oh yeah, the camera move, there is one camera move where the starlings are going over the top of the stone, but that's only because I got so excited I nudged the camera. <laughs> yeah, just below, yeah. Um, so in the context of this being effectively um, an ecological protest film, um, how did you feel about the fact that your time and skills, resources and money are going into a piece of art rather than something more um, direct, like making a blockade or blowing up a pipeline with those kinds of things? To, to mention another film. <laughs> yes. That's such a good, that's such a good question. Uh, well, number one, I think I said earlier, my nature had never been to protest in that public way, that sphere of things. And you, you know, that's a criticism of me. I, I get that on the chin straight away. Um, but I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example. So this film now, when I, went on the, when I went on the march with Extinction Rebellion, it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. And I loved being part of a community of people who were all standing for the things that I passionately believe in and we marched around Parliament Square and blah, blah, blah. 
the only coverage, because there were no violence and because everybody was obeying Extinction Rebellion's request that it be a very peaceful event, which it was, the only coverage that was on the BBC, or across the media rather, um, right across the media, was that um, the London Marathon was being uh, run on the same day, and were we going to disrupt the London Marathon? And in fact, the only positive, the best interview that came out of the whole thing was Chris Brasher, who was running the marathon, saying, no, I've been speaking to Extinction Rebellion for months about this. Everything's going to be fine. You know, but actually, it was all negative about the thing. So, uh, we're in a lucky position as filmmakers to do other things. So, I've made this film. I'm about to go on a tour to Exeter, Bristol, Cardiff, Newcastle, Glasgow, this is all next week for me, uh, Leeds, London, where it's going to be shown in cinemas. I'm going on the train. Um, I've got my tree, train hugger app, so every train trip that I um, go on will plant trees. And it, I'm going to go around Britain on the train and go and show the film. Two people to have these same discussions because they've seen the film. And then uh, the film is being shown in Zurich. Um, and uh, the film festival there. Now that is the heart of the banking community, um, Switzerland. So the chances are that a proportion of the people who are going to come and see this film will be in the banking industry. What other way is it do you get to say your message to a bunch of bankers? Um, I really hope the, the, the Westminster have a cinema and I really hope they do invite films to go. Uh, so I I really hope that um, my MP, Derek, if you're listening, uh, will invite me to come and show the film in the heart of Westminster. Now, that's different from walking around the outside of Westminster. There is no easy answer to it, because I think both are brilliant. I think you have to, there has to be a public demonstration. There has to be that. Is it me? I don't know. I, you know. I think it's, it's the same answer as, as how, you, how you make a film, how do you make the world a better place, how do you, how do you use your agencies. You, you, you use what you've got and you start with what you can do. You know, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons to not stand up to power, there's a lot of reasons to not make a film, there's a lot of reasons to not communicate with people, there's a lot of reasons to not change. It's very easy to just coast along and, and, and let things be in think it's somebody else's responsibility or, or, or whatever but to to just go okay you've got something to say, you're a filmmaker you've got something to say make a film say it get it out to an audience and then have that conversation I think that's one of the most powerful tools that we have to, to for society to evolve if we don't talk to each other about the ideas that are in our head the things that are worrying us and keeping us awake at night how are we going to change them so I think yeah it's 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 really important to I'm not going to say it's really important to blow up pipelines. It's really important to, to protest against injustice in whatever way you can, and film is a damn good way of doing it. And I think one of the things about the beginning of the film, there's no mention of climate change for 20 minutes deliberately, as well as the journey that I went on. But I, you know, by the time I was editing, I, I already, you know, I was in, in a different mindset by the time I was editing. But I, I kept it free of that because also there's a seduction process that has to happen. If I hit you over the head from the day, from the moment my film starts saying, 
you know, the climate is in crisis. Oh, okay, we know what this is. This film is, and you, it's important to seduce people because you're not making. I'm not making this for members of Extinction Rebellion. They're already on site. This is for the bankers and and for everybody else. You know, for whom maybe like me, they were struggling to make connections between how do I cope with things that are happening in Africa and 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 um, uh, wildfires and and uh, the Arctic and other places in the world that I've never been to. And this was my solution. Just give you one final thing, is that when I left film school, my first job was to work at Children's BBC and uh, making documentaries for children. And I did it, I just thought, oh, it's a job, I'll go and do it. And then I got there and I realised it's the best job in the world. And I stayed there for nearly 10 years making documentaries for children because, in the 90s, um, because... Uh, I realised that if there is one audience that you can influence, it's children. So I made lots of films about social justice issues, refugee crisis, which was happening even then back in the 90s, um, and, uh, and all those sort of things, because actually changing the hearts and minds of adults is a lot harder. So if one piece of advice I could give you is making work for children is a brilliant and very beautiful thing to do. Nice. Yeah, I think it's think, thinking about the, the kind of the power of cinema as a as a political tool uh, is important. And Sai says, film is a mirror that reflects the details of the world, living life, our bodies, etc. Which I think the, this film does beautifully, and it's important to remember. Where was the next? One? Yeah, thank you. Um, so when people talk about climate change, it's often people either consider it a political issue because it's so sort of. Um, Interwoven, and it's so sort of necessary to talk about those kind of things when considering it. But then people also consider it completely separate because it's nature, and it's sort of, it's, you know, it's different to that. I was wondering if you considered your film political or not. Yeah, of course, it, yes. It is political. It, it has to be political. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I don't think anything isn't political, no. really. And and I was just thinking about two different um, audience members' reactions to to some of the um, previous screenings of this. One, uh, um, somebody in the audience said, "I'm I'm never buying a salad bag again." So there was a direct action as a direct result of the film. And somebody else, I think, after the first or second screening at Sheffield, came up afterwards walked up to Chris and said, how do we solve climate change then? Which was quite a big ask. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I think your question's brilliant, actually. Um, I didn't set out to make a political film. I was just filming the stone and this thing emerged. But it obviously becomes political and it obviously becomes a polemic in that way. Actually, it was reviewed in The Guardian today and um, the... Um, reporter, the, the film reviewer, uh, really enjoyed the mesmeric kind of feel of the, of my, the, the film, the, the use of the, the, the way nature is portrayed within the film. But she balked a bit at the heck, what she called the hectoring of my statements around, uh, towards the end of the film, around things connected with climate change. Um, I've got some sympathy with her, but I. But at the end of the day, we are in a situation where hectoring is really important. Uh, even today, with Rishi Sunak 
rolling back ri ridiculously on, on pledges. You know, hectoring could never has never been more important. So it's political in that sense, but it's a very personal politics. And it's not a politics of the left or the right, it's a politics of um, of injustice for future generations. That's how I saw it in my head. And in the way, I hope, I hope the film has hope in it um, through the metaphor of the young people going to Milan and those, uh, and the barley seeds just falling on the ground and saying, I was going, up yours. <laughs> I'm going to say, up yours. I don't care. I'm going to grow and I'm going to grow in my own way. And no matter what, the, what is happening in terms of farming, in terms, I'm just going to grow. And I think that that's the metaphor for the end for me, which makes it a, a hopeful piece. I hope, I hope people I have that. Some, something which you, you've talked about since, since making the film, maybe a bit whilst we were making it, um, but certainly since making the film and, and as we sort of looked at how to describe it and, and portray it to the world, is, is kind of thinking about all of those big ecological climate change films where you know crashing glaciers and, and and the world on fire and all of these kind of images they make you feel really powerless you know it's like sometimes they have the opposite effect of what the the intention is with those things yes it's important to be aware that those things are happening but if you feel like it's armageddon and you can't do anything about it that's a very powerless place to sit in and i think what because it is so personal, what this film does, for me, as, a, as an audience member of this film, what it does is it, it makes me think, it makes me think, yes, there's all these things going on, and all of these things are interconnected, but it is ultimately, you know, you, in wh whatever sphere of influence you have, which might be tiny, it might be large, it will certainly fluctuate for your life, is to just kind of be, be who you are and be where you are, and to be present. I think more than anything, that's what this film does is it, it kind of it, it slows it slows down to be present and to actually that that in itself is quite a, an act of rebellion mm. in this world. I was gonna ask um what sort of hardships did you face whilst you were filming? I can't even see who that is. Who's, who's speaking? Oh hello <laughs> hardships <laughs> or oh, terrible hardship. Uh, Got a, bit, got a bit wet sometimes. I got very wet. <laughs> None really. Not in terms of real hardship. This is hardly I was going to the Arctic. Uh, but in a way, actually, it was obsessional. And I found myself um, going, leaving, getting out of bed at four in the morning, two in the morning, uh, being there till 11 at night. It just became a sort of... A, a sort of for an entire year, um, an all-consuming passion. So there was no hardship in the making. In fact, because it's a, a, at a mile from my house, you know, I walked to the location more often than not. I cycled to it often. Or if I was driving past on the way back from um, uh, to, 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 to somewhere else, you know, I'm teaching two days a week here at Parliament or on the way back, I would, I would stop, you know, if there was something, I'd occasionally just stop. Sometimes I saw a squall coming in, and I'd, you know, get in the car and go, because if I had walked, I wouldn't have been able to get there in time. So, you know, carbon was burnt in the, in the making. But in terms of hard, hardship, um, 
No, I tell you, well, actually, the, the hardship was actually getting to, coming to terms with it in my own head that it had any worth. And I know that sounds really stupid because I'm an experienced filmmaker, but it's still, it's still that thing. And now, actually, when I'm, when I'm screening it, when I was screening it last week in Serbia, that I was amongst seven films that had been chosen for this festival, and the other films were magnificent. They were just incredible. And the incredible sense of imposter syndrome. Well, this is just me in a field with a rickety tripod. And, what, you know, honestly, are they, you know, and maybe it speaks to an a British audience, but what, what on earth will the Serbs make of it? And, it, you know, it, I, you can't help those feelings. I think they're actually really important for the creative process, to be honest. But, um, yeah, the biggest hardship was probably getting over my own um, feelings that it was a bit crap. We've got time for one more, which is up the back. So, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you took influence from the cinematographer of Kondoskati. Um Were the contrasts between like the macro shots and the really wide-angle, massive landscapes, were they deliberately planned? Yeah. I mean, if you watch Baraka or any of those programmes, you know, I love films that move from... In my documentary work, my lens is always wide, full frame, or it is in. I try not to use the middle of the lens too much. The standard television mid-shot, um, even when I'm working in television, I try to use the, ends of the, the, the interesting ends of the lenses. With the camera that I was using, do you know what camera I was using? I don't know whether anybody said anything. So, that... It was all shot on my phone. Uh, so the iPhone 12 Pro Max was what I had. And they, it has an outstanding macro um, uh, option. Uh, the time-lapse sequences, I didn't use the standard time-lapse you get on your iPhone. I downloaded some app that I can't even remember what it's called uh, because it was very good. And uh, that... I did that, uh, but the rest of it was shot on my phone um, using the standard. I bought a bunch of uh, things to attach to the iPhone, none, none of which were any good, so I chucked those, and um, I just used the lenses and the natural compressions and, and things that were in the iPhone. Now, that's why Michael Todd, who was our grader, lavished weeks of work on it so for example in the in the uh the shots of the um where it's really misty you'd get banding because the iphone couldn't cope with the gradation that subtle gradation of the thing but you know michael had a button and he pressed the button and that went <laughs> he literally did press them oh you mean the banding button oh yeah there we go. it was you know the modern technology applied at the back end really really helped the, the iPhone image to get it to the point where it actually looks okay on, on the big screen. But I'm quite glad if you didn't really know, we, had, we don't advertise it as an as a iPhone movie, because I think it, it's reductive. People will come looking at the images and go, oh, hasn't he done well? You know, <laughs> we're actually, it's much better to go in and you just watch it as a movie and then, oh, fine, it was just shot very simply on a very small tripod with a very small camera. It does, it does go to show though, it's, it's really, it's not about you know, there, there are definitely choices about what format you shoot your 
films on, but it's not it's not as much about that as it is about the ideas and the and the skills of the person using it. So yeah. I think skills. Well, you know, it's it's a, it's a simple tool, but there's yeah. thirty years experience going into working that simple tool. Yeah. It? It and there were so many shots I wouldn't have got had I not had the iPhone, like the uh, the the thing coming out the plane coming out the top of the in a very phallic way <laughs> to the top of the uh, thing and the and the birds flying the, past the, the first um, teaser we put up on YouTube was taken down yeah. because of that image. Yeah. <laughs> Outrageous. Uh, controversial film. Uh, who knew? Right. Um, well it's controversial the fact that it's now a twelve A because it's got one F word in it. Can you believe that the the censors will allow children to watch incredible amounts of violence and disturbing stuff. But this film, you have to be 12 or over to watch it. Actually, it's not a bad thing. Maybe you do have to be 12 to watch it, but it's because of the F word. Crazy. Well, yeah, because we talked about that a lot, didn't we, on the release? The release, it just it was a kind of weird, just such a weird response. Um, but, but thinking about it, 12A is a company with a parent. So I think it's interesting that, you know, parents and their children have to watch it together. Which means maybe you should target um, Rishi's children for getting them to, and then they'll have to, have to take their dad uh, <laughs> for the movies. Um, he needs to watch more movies. Um, so, well, yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you all for... Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much for the questions. Um, I'd like to close with, with a side quote, which is, film is not only about storytelling, but can sometimes be closer to poetry. Um, which I think is something that we, we believe. Um, and I think this film definitely has many moments of kind of real poetic beauty. So congratulations on the film. Good luck on the tour. To all of you, hang on, to all of you, spend some, while you're here for three years, spend some time in West Penwith with some stones. Um, but for now, let's thank our, our guest, Denzel and Chris. Thanks to the Polly for hosting the screening. Thanks to uh, Denzel and Chris for joining me on stage. I really enjoyed that conversation, and uh, yeah, really sort of yeah enjoyed spending time again thinking about thinking about the film uh, and kind of how it's how it's being received by audiences and and how that and and the potential sort of things that it sort of brings out of audiences. So, Dario, you've seen the film and yeah heard the conversation. What what are your sort of thoughts on uh, on it all? Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful meditative piece that is impressive simply by the fact of um, that it was shot on a on a phone and it, it has that sort of sense of patience and kind of micro detail, but yet speaking to universal kind of cosmic themes, you know, of time and nature and uh, existence and all of that kind of thing. And... Yeah, I mean, I, I, th th there's no plot to speak of. So once you've said, you know, it's it's really great to look at. That, you, I mean, it's no good on a podcast, is it? Because the audience has to see it for the audience has to see the film for for themselves to to really see what I mean by that. But yeah, just the sort of uh, the vividness of the way it it it, it depicts nature, but also not 
not in that. I mean, it's it's impressive, but in a, in a much more low key, but equally equally profound as you might see on a, on one of the big BBC nature documentaries. But it, it's very much got that that contemplative philosophical element that that people mentioned with regards to something like Koyanutskatse. Yeah, and interestingly, one of the things that sort of struck me was the, and this came out in the interview as well, was the question of hope. And I am increasingly kind of hopeless, I think, when it comes to getting to the point of understanding what are, what are the possibilities of the human race kind of saving itself. And maybe that is really pessimistic, but it doesn't have the kind of grand hopefulness of, of Koyanuskatse, that's for sure. And it's interesting because I've seen quite a number of what I would broadly call the eco-films um, over the last two or three years. There's quite a few of them at, at the, the Berlin Film Festival, I thought, that, that weren't necessarily overtly environmentalist politically, but they have this sort of quality of what I would call contemplative dystopia as a style. And yeah, it's almost as if there's a uh, an acceptance of the end in some way sort of riven through the tone of many of these films. And yeah, I mean, Chris is right in the sense of the didacticism of, of the environmental injustice doesn't really kick in until sort of a third of the way into the film. And I, I, I've seen a review that sort of, the, the one negative thing that it said about the film was the, the, the sort of didacticism of the tone of the voiceover at certain points. Um, but but even that to me is exceptionally mild. Um, and I think maybe we could talk a little bit later, you know, more broadly about wh whether film can enact any political change anymore. And I just feel like that, that there is this cycle of films coming out now that don't have any solutions because nobody has any solutions. So what's happening is filmmakers are kind of like making films that, all, uh, that are almost um, time capsules for what the earth once looked like, you know? And, and it's almost as if, I mean, I don't think this is intentional, but but this is this reads to me like a film that if it's picked up in a hundred years time, people would look at it and go, oh yeah, do you remember when the earth looked like that? Mm. You know, it's, it, there's almost a sort of depressive nostalgia to it. Um, and I know that sounds really downbeat, but I I, I don't know what they're, I, like many filmmakers, I think who work, and, and many you know, activists who work in, in the environmental sense, um, or, in the, you know, that that's their, that's their political agenda and it should be everyone's political agenda for sure. Um, it's almost as if what, what is there to say artistically, um, beyond making a film as Denzel sort of pointed, pointed out that, that smashes everything up and burns everything to the ground in terms of, you know, political systems, you can do that, but you can also, you know, make a film like this which kind of says is much more meditative and, and sort of looks at the earth and existence and nature in this sort of, uh, in this sort of cosmic universalist sense, but really neither, the, neither of those options offer up a, a solution. So maybe that's, those are the only two kind of avenues that, that, that filmmakers, filmmakers have. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Cause it's that idea of what is a, political cinema is something that we covered when we talked about the Falmouth Film Weekend, you know, the Laura Mulvey um, episode and, you sure. know, th and this idea of like 
where is the kind of political located in cinema and oftentimes it is in you know what is termed experimental cinema and and in documentary but i think in a in a in a different way this feels much closer to that kind of experimental film politics in terms of it being a very subjective experiential film you know where chris is clearly kind of leading us through a kind of personal experience in the way that a lot of you know experimental cinema has done and a, and a, and a personal sure. politics evolves you know and i think that the film invites your own personal politics into into play in a way that isn't didactic um it's almost like kind of you know one way which i think why you know sort of there has been this the response that's growing around the film is is one of a kind of i think an audience is surprised at how engaged they've found it you know i think people are going to see a they think they're going to see a film about a standing stone which it is but it's it it's not, the, the other stuff sort of creeps up on you um and i think because it crept up on chris i think that's what's really interesting is that the film's sure. structure reflects that kind of personal awakening which feels very genuine you know and i think there are a lot of films which are trying to you know and a lot of, sort of television are trying to tap into you know questions of englishness or kind of you know relationship to land or you know kind of celtic you know histories but they're kind of going to those places asking those questions and i think that this is a film which has come out of someone who was you know clearly very connected to the place and has then sort of just been responding to things that are felt over a long period of time and so you know it, it feels like that kind of personal expression and you know there is this idea you know which kind of i've spoken to to chris and Dennis about which is the idea of like the specific is universal you know and i do think that there's the specificness of the place and chris's relationship to that place is what makes it something which people can find connection to even if they live in a city around the world which doesn't have any standing stones you know it's about it's about feeling that engagement with the place in a way which just reframes your relationship to where you live in a very very immediate sense and from there a personal hope about oh i could do this and this would change this seems to be seems to be possible and i i, I don't think if you're going to have hope that you can have hope anywhere else i don't think you can have hope in and in, in a structural change or a corporate change or a kind of global change in terms of our relationship to the the climate the only hope i think you can have is that you can find it in yourself to do something which makes a difference and that that has an accumulative effect amongst enough people to 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 see some kind of change you know that then makes everything else inevitable but it's 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 a big it's a big it's a big ask but yeah you know it, it's and i think as well that a film like this kind of does put you back in mind which I, I guess i'd be interested because i think you know you know there's me living in cornwall i can feel this film in a different way because of my environment you know but you live in the middle of london you know so the things that the film is almost kind of inviting you to be able to do must feel very different in terms of the city um and and london particularly which is kind of you know mega city yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that and there's a lot I want to sort of pick up on because I, I, what you're sort of advocating for there, and I think Denzel sort of talks about it, and this isn't the fault of the film and it's not the fault of the process of the film, which is fascinating, you know, in a technical sense, but also in the contextual sense 
of you know coming out of covid and we've all we've all sort of lived through that and we've all had our that that, that impact on us in certain ways um yeah you're right it's not but it's not just that i live in i, I live in london it's the fact i am an out and out city boy you know yeah. and i'm not a fan of the idea of nostalgically returning to a pre-modern state of nature or neither to kind of embrace the the, the idea of the the answer to all of all of our problems is a kind of beltane folksiness I i'm sorry if that sounds condescending i really don't mean it to but do you know what i mean it's not i i, I think that's that's naive in, in 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 many ways but I'm glad, and the, the film definitely the film didn't lean into that too much. I really like the sort of metaphysics of 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 time and the, the sense of human epicness and smallness in the face of of time and nature. Um, but yeah, just on on that that sort of sense of the individual. I mean, again, it's it's so it's so difficult, isn't it? Because really, if there is going to be any change on a significance scale it has to be in the community or you know there has to be a sort of solidarity with others and yeah. that the wider that solidarity is the more possible change is going to take place and i think there is a danger with this kind of approach to environmentalism that you're you just have to look after your own individual little bit of land to the world you know your family um you know it's it, it it does speak to a kind of soft left passivity i think and and you know it's a difference say between that kind of documentary filmmaking and say the documentary filmmaking of the third cinema which you know and you could say well that never succeeded in sort of changing people's minds but at least it was absolutely about the collective and making people call to action to to do things that that challenge power systems and mm. i think the problem with the, the the whole look after your bit of land you know sort of way of thinking is that you you're going to end up i mean maybe you'll be all right in cornwall but you're going to end up being you know the omega man or or you know the last like a little bit like sort of jenks's ennis main a sort of last person on earth kind of thing and and yeah it's i I sort of disagree with that. I think it's too individualized. But, you know, I have a very sort of very specific sort of take on this as well in terms of that. You know, I've talked about in, in the fall, in, in, in the past about a kind of um, pragmatic nihilism about about the, the response re response to this. And, and, you know, just to finish off, you could say as well that the, the individualized reaction is exactly what the powers that be want because they know that individual small actions are easily containable within the system of power as it as as it stands. Sorry, yeah. sorry to be like I mean, I don't know. I'm not sorry. It's kind of I think it's an interesting debate to 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 have in in those days. But this is nothing to do with. I think this is nothing to do with the the quality of the film as as an artifact. I think it's just interesting that you know that question of where where film lies as a as a political uh, as a political possibility. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I'll push back slightly, I think, because I think that, you know, one of the things about Cornwall that I've sort of realized and learned and sort of been been sort of part of is that it's not really, it's not a place of individuals. It is a place of community. And mm. this film was made in, in a community way, you know, I mean, it's very much Chris's story, but 
you know that it it was made in a way that you know rejects long long standing ideas about how a film that can play cinemas can get made um and find its way to the screen you know that the community of people that are around it like Andy Stark at Anti Worlds, um, who are distributing the film, and Stone Club, and kind of you know the, the the people involved in the sort of the finishing of the film through the the uni are kind of evidence of that. And I think that it is there is a kind of a kind of I would say a, a political nostalgia in the sense of trying to preserve something which is which is meaningful in Cornwall, which is you know a sense of community. And you know, post COVID, what's been interesting is that you know that. Cornwall has been subject to the influx of, you know, people fleeing London and for the most part has kind of resisted, you know, the those those kind of London by the sea possibilities that other places have been subjected to over kind of getting out to the getting out to the coast and then working remotely and stuff. And because of the way Cornwall is and its infrastructure, it it it's never gonna be able to do that really. And it it, it doesn't want to do that. And it is there is a kind of a pushback against actually, you know, if you allowing people um, to just come here and, and 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 retain that kind of individualness at the expense of what is really meaningful and possible down here, and it feels like sometimes it can feel a bit guardiany, you know, uh, but oftentimes it does feel like oh, yeah, yeah. there's a real there is a real sense of community which is 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 kind of doing things differently to to that, you know, which is you're right, is not you know. Is now everybody thinks that societal problems are going to be solved, and it's certainly not going to, you know, there's not going to be huge radical change, which is kind of felt across the country. I think that a lot of that is to do with Cornwall's relationship to the rest of the British Isles, you know, which which dates back to a very long time. Um, but yeah, that may be a kind of, they may be naive, but it certainly feels like small local community change is possible and. And other models can grow, which at least kind of ask the question of why why certain things are being still being done the same way and, and still and nothing is being done. And that idea of well, you can't do anything, you know, Cornwall seems to be a place where there are many examples of, of of ways of doing things around farming, around sort of community, you know, sort of social support that, you know, could be could be scaled up and could could make you know change. And then that question is asked, um, at a political level and it's no you know it's no no coincidence that this is you know a place where a lot of this happens despite a kind of Tory stronghold and a sort of long-standing yeah. you know sort of series of MPs with supposedly you know kind of you know the interests of of a place like Cornwall in their portfolio who have no interest in engaging with with it on a local level in their own constituency let alone on a national level which makes it a bit more political um but I think what what I'm sort of proud of in terms of being involved in the film is is that yeah it, I think it does it does more than you would think on the surface um, and I think in in some of the places where it's going to play might have might have might just make people feel like oh actually yeah that there are things in my own community or our own community when we watch it that that they maybe didn't realise were as potentially powerful in terms of a community response than than they thought before they saw the film if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I, I think it does. I, I and I think actually probably what what Chris and and uh, Denzel sort of meant. And again, without putting, I really don't want to feel like I'm putting words in their mouth. But 
rather than rather than the film. I mean, it, it, the film is a subjective individual response, which is you know that's fine. That's exactly what it is. But then I guess the the wider political outcome would would be much more akin to a sense of of the individual's responsibility to the community, as you're you're you know, as you're sort of alluding to there. I think. Um, yeah. But then, nice. like in a, in in a, in a place like Cornwall, then if 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 individuals have a community kind of spirit, or you know, there are there are sort of. Uh, Definite actions taking place in terms of constructing society and culture, it at the benefit of the community as a, a, a as a whole. Again, even that could be insulated if you are not being profoundly activist against, like you say, the sort of incoming holiday homers from 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 London. Do you know what I mean? Because that's a that that's the thing that you're fighting against. So, say for example, if you had whatever it whatever kind of local community uh, structures form and individuals responsibilities to them then you've got a question of what, what what do you do with that do you just kind of take the crumbs and 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 you know build up things in spite of of the influence of money from the outside and mm. interests from the outside that are not the interests of the community or do you or do you literally fight back you know and i know a lot of a lot of communities and towns are fighting back in various ways, but it's very, it's very, very difficult. And of course, then you've got the, you've got you've got the future and what that's going to look like when, you know, Cornwall may become an even a, a more populous destination because people are looking to get outside of the cities for whether it's whether it's for economic or environmental reasons. So it's such a, I think it's such a a, a complex picture. And you know, I I, I realize we've kind of gone away from the the nuts and bolts of the of the movie itself but actually i think that that is the strength of the movie it it kind of it does that i mean your way into it with simon yang is great and the quote about what a cinema should do is really vital and i think that the at the first instance this allows you the space to to have a questioning of of the outside of of the world of society and and uh, of yourself which is the starting point i think for a political cinema mm, absolutely yeah nicely put yeah um and i think that's the thing isn't it it's it, it's further evidence of, of 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 a kind of of what is going on in cornwall but it is also yeah kind of using cinema as a as one means of of, of starting or continuing a conversation which is what you know you, a political cinema should be doing you know uh, and has done historically um, and I think that the the question that came out of the Q and A in terms of that sort of may, reminded me that maybe there is a, a greater gap between sort of cinema and politics than than I sure. than I hoped. You know, <laughs> there would be in terms of in terms of a younger generation in terms of seeing the potential for for cinema to be part of that kind of political conversation. And but and again. And I and I, I use the word cinema rather than film because you know thinking that there is a mm. there is a poetry and a beauty to the film, you know that that means that it is it's more than just a a kind of didactic, preachy, you know kind of call to arms that there, there's there's something extra textual going on in the aesthetics that yeah kind of make it cinema um, and and also invite 
invite all the stuff that we've ended up talking about, which I think is is felt in the film, you know, and I think because you are, you know, a politically engaged viewer, that subjectivity is has a space in the film, which is really, yeah, which is really exciting. And hopefully, hopefully other audiences will, will feel the same. Lovely. Well, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that that chat, actually. I think it's uh, obviously something we're probably going to return to. And just congratulations to, to Chris and Denzel and, and, and the team. And uh, yeah, if Chris wants to come to Ravensbourne University, we'd love to have him uh, screen the film there at some point in, in the future. But uh, yeah, lovely to talk to you, Neil, and really great to be uh, back on the, the podcasting horse, as it were. Yeah, back with a bang. Nice, nice deep chat to uh to kick things off no slow sure no slow intro here <laughs> indeed and, and uh I, we'll definitely get get some um bonus material up there very soon which will pre maybe a little bit more free form in terms of what we're watching and uh you know what we're devouring as we move into um the the autumn season yeah and i'll be posting something this week from uh sort of a visit i made down to the stone with chris uh, and Denzel, um, so it's a little bit of extra extra content coming your way too. Lovely. So that will just about do it. As I said at the beginning, any uh, reviews or shout outs or shares that you can do of the podcast, we'd really love to to see that. And we always try and mention people who've mentioned us uh, out and about, whether it's digitally or in analog terms. Um, if you want to go that extra mile, we really would welcome some support on Patreon. It's very cheap. Uh, just two pound a month is the, the the basic rate, and you do do get a lot of bonus material. Now stretching back quite quite a few years, and of course our um, monthly newsletter. Uh, Neil, looking forward to London FF. Yeah, big time. I've been sort of catching, making, plugging a few gaps in terms of some filmmakers who, whose films are showing. Um, yeah, I think it's a really great lineup. I'm really excited and excited to talk to you about it as well. Yeah, it looks it looks great. That's what, what my Saturday morning is going to be, sort of uh, filling out my calendar of what I can get to see around around my full time job, of course. Of course. Um, but that's it. Until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>